dysfunctional families flourish when everyone does what is right in its own eyes. Since Lucas uh, set me up for 50 verses this week, that's your intro. Here we go. Dysfunctional families flourish. We've got 50 verses to go through. That's your intro. Dysfunctional families flourish when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. We're in Judges. We're picking this up. So Judges 10, 17. The liturgy guy says 11. Well, we're back in 10. Okay, go back to chapter 10, verse 17. I want you to see it with me. Was it page 218 around there in your pew Bible? If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible, page 218. I want you to see it with me. If you don't have a Bible at all, take it home with you. 1017, the Ammonites were called together and they camped in Gilead. So the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. 11.1, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and, land, and lived in the land of Tob or Tob. And some worthless men, worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. Now, if you've been with us, you should connect this a little bit with Abimelech. Abimelech's the son, not of a prostitute, but of a concubine. And how did his brothers treat him? Now, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute, and he's kicked out by his brothers. And he's got this dysfunctional family from the beginning because this whole quick story raises up a lot of questions. Who's this woman? Who's this Israelite that thinks it's okay to have a wife? And then also, who's, who, 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 how do they know about all this? How, how do they know? it? Like, it's just widely known. It's no secret. It's just like, yeah, we all know who, who's Jephthah's mom is. It's a media quick, sad picture, portrait of what's happening in Israel. But then, as he's kicked out by his brothers, away from his home, away from his family, away from his economy, away from the potential to grow into the man he could be, he's kicked out. And uh, what does dysfunctional families usually lead to? Not... I said usually. Sometimes it leads to thugs that start gathering other thugs to start raiding people and raiding villages. So you got to come up. Here's your next sideline. From thug to commander. Okay? That's worthless men, raids. This is what it. Uh, some, some, some places will, will call Jephthah the first crime boss. Okay? If you're like, he's not Italian. I don't know what that name is, but that's the first crime boss, people will say. verse 4, sometime later the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered him, that's true, but now we turn to you. We turned you away, we kicked you out, but now we turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
So Jephthah, you'll see he's, he's pretty good at negotiation. I know one in this room, one person in this room that may be as good as Jephthah in negotiation, Chris. But this guy's good. If you're bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is our witness if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went up with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander. And Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mitzvah. So he goes from no inheritance in his father's family to being the leader not only of his family, but the whole family clan. We'll make you our leader. We need you. And so it's a wild story of this dysfunctional family, but then as he gets out and he becomes more thuggish and gets more violent and has more experience on his belt and, and makes more progress, probably gathers a few more militiamen, and they're like, this guy's got some brawn. This guy's got some power so they come to him we kicked you out but we need you now we'll make you the leader then you got Jephthah I told you it's not just a thug he's a thug who can negotiate verse 12 Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammonites asking I'm sorry I skipped that there we go verse 12 Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites asking what do you have against me that you have to come to fight me in my land. The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon, the Jabbok, and the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Why I say he's a, a crafty negotiator is because before violence, he talks. Before he draws the sword, he pins a letter. Now, we'll see his character, but there's just wisdom there. If someone's against you, ask them why they're against you before you go against them. Ask some questions. See what's happening. Maybe think the best about them. Maybe not consider the worst, but actually talk. Ask questions. See what's happening. He negotiates first. First, he negotiates from history. This is his long speech right here. That's what I'm saying. He's, he's more than just a thug because he goes in this eloquent reply back to them trying to convince them, like, we don't need to do this. Probably in his mind, it's like, this is a quick way to being the leader. I don't have to fight anyone. I, they'll say no. They'll leave, and all, the, all my family will be like, yeah, Jephthah, amazing, good. But he sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell him, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. So he's given this history. He's rebutting this, this historical account of like, oh, you want to fight because of the history? Oh, let me tell you the history. Then they traveled through the wilderness and around the lands of Edom and Moab. They came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, but did not enter into the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of Amorites, king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, please let us travel through your land to our country. But Sihon would not trust Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sihon gathered all his troops, camped at Jahaz, and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Sihon and all his troops to Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession 
of the entire land of the Amorites who live in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So he's saying, wrong. Really, that's what it is. <laughs> you know, just that's it. He just says that and like, let's keep moving. Here's the history. No, 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 your history's wrong. This is the history. I'll give you more detailed history. This is what actually happened. He's not done. He negotiates second from deity. In verse 23, he says, The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel. And will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God Chemosh conquers for you and we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us? So not only history, not only the lamb, but now he's also our God. Our God conquered this, right? So we have it. Just like you would say, if your God conquers this, it's yours. But now he goes personally. <laughs> Straight up this. This king. Are you better than Balak's son of Zippor, king of Moab? You think you're more powerful? You think you have more prestige? You think you... Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon, Eroer, and their surrounding villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon... Why didn't you take them back at that time? All right. And now even more personal. I have not sinned against you. Why are you coming against us? I have not done anything. So you're not better than that person personally for you. And then also personally, I've not done anything for you to like retaliate for. But you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord who is the judge decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. See that wisdom there. Of slowing down, negotiating, trying to resolve peacefully. There's just wisdom here in the, in the conflict of how do you engage conflict? How do you war with someone when they're seeming to be at war with you? How do you speak to them? How do you come to them? What kind of posture do you have? I mean, if it's correction at all, then Galatians would say those who restore that person in sin need to have a gentle spirit lest we get pulled into it. Verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent them. So you've got this illustration of a New Testament verse that says that live peacefully at all times with all men, if at all possible. If at all. So he's trying to, he's trying to. And the reality is when you work with, when you deal with conflict and you try your best and you honor the Lord through it, and, and you'll probably mess up, but you're trying to honor the Lord through it. Sometimes it just won't happen. Live peacefully with everyone, if at all possible. You're going for it. But jealousy and unresolved conflict brews until it doesn't. It snaps and goes to war. The jealousy of the land, we saw this in the covetousness a few weeks ago. I want that. This is mine. I want to take this from you. I've got to have this. And this unresolved conflict throughout this whole area keeps happening. 
but this is when the story really turns dark. This is when the story turns dark. Rash vows are a trap. That would be the next headline. Rash vows are a trap. Verse 29. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah who traveled. So you've got that. That's happened a few times in the book of Judges. The deliverer has the spirit of the Lord come upon them so they are empowered to do whatever they need to do for God's glory and for the people, right? But it's so quick here and it, it's sad. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made his vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me, when I return safely from the Ammonites, will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah to win the victory for Israel and his response is a pagan prayer. The leaders now are getting worse and worse. Their character is further and further away from the God of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They, they, do, they don't know him. If you give me victory, I'll give you a sacrifice, is what he's saying. If you give me victory, I'll give you a sacrifice. I'm not saying that again because I'm saying that this is pagan prayer, but in our syncretism, your Christian prayer and your pagan prayer happens simultaneously throughout the week. That idea of like, I'm, I'm, I'm praying to the God of the Bible, but I'm treating him like a pagan deity. Well, if you give me this, I'll give you what you need. That's how pagan gods operate. It assumes that God is in need, and if he gives you what you ask, then you'll give him what he needs. But Jephthah, he knows the history of Israel, but he doesn't seem at all to know the God of Israel. Because it's not how this God operates. He operates on covenant loyalty and faithfulness, not on transactions based on him needing something. He needs nothing, Jephthah. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He wasn't asking for that. He's not calling for it. What you see with him is that, yes, you, you negotiate with people, but you ask and submit to God. You don't negotiate with God. You don't try to manipulate God. Pagans manipulate Christians' trust. That's what they should do. We trust. We trust our God. We're not trying to bend his arm because we think we have some power over him because he's needy from us. And so, God, if, you, if you'll do the thing that I'm really needing right now, then I'll live for you. Then I'll do this. Then I'll do that. He's more formed, Jephthah. He's more formed in his thoughts and his desires by Chemosh. And we're about to see how. But a, a proverb to transition 
Proverbs 20, 25 says, it's a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vow. I think I've quoted that to everyone who's ever gone through a membership interview with me. I've quoted that to you. Let me quote it to you here. It's a trap. It's a snare. You're setting yourself up to fall into your own booby trap when you rashly make vows and then only think about it after the fact. This is what he does. He, he makes this serious, intense vow. People try to minimize this and say, he's only thinking about animals. I read it very clearly to you twice. Whoever comes out the door. Not whatever. And then he says, I will offer that what? Person. Verse 32. So this is the vow. Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He responds with his pagan prayer. What's going to happen? Verse 32. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter. 20 of the cities. From Erewhar all the way to the entrance of Meneth and to Abel Karamim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. They won. They got the victory. Gileads, you got what you asked for. You got for a thug to be your leader. He won. What's about to happen? When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You've devastated me. You've brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. For the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Go. That's it. That's his response. And he sent her away two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. She's never going to have kids. She's never going to see this family line continue. Actually, her father's line is going to stop with her because she's the only child. And so what he bargained God with to secure his future ends up killing his future. Kept the vow. Verse 39. At the end of two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became a custom in Israel, Israel that four days each year the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. He Jephthah doesn't know the God of Israel. Because the God of Israel doesn't want your children. Doesn't want to consume your children. Doesn't want your children sacrificed to him. If 
Jephthah would have only known things like Leviticus 18.21. You are not to sacrifice any of your children in the fire to Molech. Do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And if you take Leviticus 20, 1 through 5, and that, you could simply summarize it this way. The sacrifice of our children to the gods of this world is an abomination punishable by death. That's the spirit of the old covenant law. In 1 King, Molech is referred to as the abomination of the Ammonites. And so you take that together and see the portrait of the Ammonites, gods, is Molech and Chemosh, and both of them have an appetite for kids. Both these gods that these Ammonites worship love for your kids to be sacrificed on their altars. It's believed that the parents would actually kill their kids and then throw them into the idle face with the mouth open and the fire was in the mouth of the god. So you'd kill your son and then, or daughter and throw them into the fire. Jephthah is more formed by the gods of Chemosh than the god of Israel because he knows, even though it's rash, he knows the vow. It's a, it's a similar form and practice of the Ammonites to make vows that would include potentially their, their kids to die so that they can win. Kids die so parents survive. Now, this is one of those classic times where like, I'm really glad I didn't live in that era, but then also we think we're so far removed. <laughs> what is our view of children? Well, in our day, the name on the building is not Chemosh, but Planned Parenthood. In our land, abortions are executed so parents not only survive, they can thrive. Kids die so parents can live as they want. This is heavy, and it's, it's not just out there. Like, like hey, we're, we're talking about the neighborhood, and we're like, yeah, you guys. You're terrible. The last stat I read, women identifying themselves as Protestant obtained 37.0% of all abortions in the United States. Women identifying as Protestant. And then you're like, well, the Catholics are very vocal. They've got to be better. They fight for this clearly and openly, but Catholic women account for 31.3%. Jewish women account for 1.3%, and women with no religious affiliation obtain 23%. What I'm saying is we're not that far removed. We're offering our kids to the idols of this world. In the, in the war of worship between gods, our kids are at stake. Say it differently. In the war of worship between the God of the Bible and the gods of this age, your kids are at stake. Their lives, their willing, their well-being, their character, their minds, their hearts, their future in this war 
Things are actually on the line. And one of the biggest things on the line for you, for me, is your little munchkins running around. Because all the gods of this world want to eat them, consume them, take them from you in whatever form fashion that looks like, whether death or completely molding them to the age of this world rather than to the Lord of this world. God does not want to consume your kids. He wants to conform your kids into the image of Jesus, which is the, and you're like, well, that sounds weird. You know what he wants for them? He wants them to be lovely and truthful and gracious and strong and tender like Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. That's what he wants for them. He doesn't want to take their souls. He doesn't want to take their lives from them. He doesn't want to take their joy from them. He doesn't want to steal their hope. He wants to make them lovely and beautiful and gracious and kind and merciful and strong and fortified and leaders. That's what he wants. But I'll stay on this idea of chemosh and abortion because we're going to keep going to think about this idolatry. Like, why, why do people have abortions? think that begins to reveal the, the idolatry in our hearts. One percent, this is against stats and their stats, okay? I'm not leaning on these. This isn't the bulk of the message. My point's not here. I know what stats are. All right. Okay. One percent of all abortions occur because of rape or incest. One percent. 6% of abortions occur because of potential health problems regarding either the mother or the child. 93, 93% of all abortions occur for social reasons. In other words, the child is unwanted or it is inconvenient to have the child at this time. According to the Alan Guttmacher Institute, 75% give the reason that the baby would interfere with work, school, or other responsibilities. Does that not expose idolatry? That we willingly sacrifice our unborn children to the altar of education, to the altar not of Molech, but of life goals? That on the seesaw, that, that's what gets higher prestige for you? on the altar of financial goals, on the altar of career goals. Now again, I could say that, and let me just, this is a hard thing to talk about. One side, I'll just say this. I want you to think about this. Because I'm talking about this, doesn't mean there's not idolatry in your heart that's affecting your kids. Like, well, I'm not on that extreme side. Well, how, how do we view our children? If that's kind of how the culture views children in general, how do we? Maybe, maybe it's not their life, but you're sacrificing your kids for your career. But that position, that title being seen in that light is 
so you crave it so much that your kids get leftovers, get ignored, get sacrificed. Maybe for education, for your life goals. Let me ask it this way. What ambition of yours are you sacrificing your kids for? What ambition of yours are you sacrificing your kids for? We need to ask ourselves serious questions. We need to seek help and have wise folks draw out our hearts and see how we're actually engaging our children, how we view them. But the good news is so good here. That the father sacrificed his own son so that we who have sacrificed our sons and daughters to the gods of this world may not be put to death but have everlasting life. That no matter if you aborted that child 10 years ago or last week, that there's grace and mercy and forgiveness for you because the son willingly walked up the, the hill to Calvary to die in your place for whatever sin you've committed. However you sacrificed your children. God has made all things right by crushing his own son, by pouring forth his wrath upon his own son that we, we who are idolaters just like Jephthah, I'm a thug like Jephthah, that we might know genuine forgiveness and, and not just forgiveness of sin and washing that clean but also giving abundant life in its place do you hear the craziness of that some of the most heinous things that we can and have done he not only takes the dead of it washes us of it but then gives us joyful life even though that's our past? So if, it's, if this has been weighing heavy on you, I want you to sense the relief of the gospel as you see the, the Father sacrificing his own son so that you might be forgiven of your sin. I want you to see that beauty. To take in the weight, the heaviness of death and sin and bring in that heaviness, that weight of relief because it's really good news that you don't have to kill your son and you don't have to die for whatever you've done to your son because the son has died for you. There's great relief there. Great hope there. I don't want you to remain in your condemnation. Stay in your guilt. Some of you have, have had abortions and never told anybody else. There's some of you that it's, 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 not, it's not that and it's not ambiguously ignoring them. It's, it's abusing them. It's harming them. It's, it's your sense of 
discipline that is not discipline, it's punishment, it's harsh, it's cruel. And even under that, I would say, why? Why do, you, why do you engage with your kids that way? There's something underneath that. Are they interrupting you? Do you, do you view them as, as little non-humans that should just be robotically cooperative and stay in a line? Is that why you lash out? Is that why you treat them that way? I want all of us to think rightly, no matter how we've engaged in this, and, and begin to repent and confess our sins and renew our thinking. But for some of you, it's not that. It's the other side. It's you worship your kids. I, I want our church to be kid-friendly, but not kid-centered. And that's what I want for your house, too. Want that for your home, where Jesus is the center. And in that, you can actually enjoy your kids and serve your kids, love your kids, instead of getting your worth and identity from your kids, which doesn't last because they can't give much. And then the, the kids or the people that you typically idolize, you begin to demonize because they can't give you what you really want from them. And so you're setting yourself up for a trap, a snare. We must be careful not to conform to this world thinking that children are not a blessing. That children are an inconvenience to be avoided. We need to understand and see them. That we're called to see children as a gift from the Lord, a blessing. You're to be a living sacrifice your kids aren't supposed to be your sacrifice. Romans 12 says, give yourself as a living dying. Be a living dying to the Lord Jesus. Be a whole burnt offering to the Lord Jesus. Be, be full of devotion and fiery with passion for the Lord Jesus in your life. That's a living sacrifice, not a dying kid in your place or a kid's childhood sacrifice so that you can feel better by yourself. They're there in your home as a blessing to be served, not sacrificed. But Jephthah's tragic story is not over. We've got seven minutes. In anger, he now turns against his own. Here's the headline. The deliverer leads us to civil war. This is how terrible this cycle has gotten. The deliverer doesn't rescue us and lead us to peace for 40 years. The deliverer leads us to civil war. Verse 1 of chapter 12. The men of Ephraim were called together and crossed the Jordan to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites, but didn't call us to go out with you? We'll burn your house with you in it. Uh, what? Now, if you haven't been with us, these are the same clan that did this back in the day. You remember? Where they got hurt, they're like, you didn't bring us to the fight. We wanted to, we wanted to fight people too. And they come back here, and they're like, you didn't bring us to the fight. We're going to burn your house with you in it. Like, they... They really want to fight, you know? They're like, oh! 
Jephthah said to them, my people and I had a bitter conflict with Ammonites, so I called for you. Now, here's where it gets a little fishy. We're not sure. We're not sure. In the text, Jephthah doesn't say this. He doesn't call for Ephraim. He doesn't say, so we don't know. Uh, I'm inclined to not believe the best about Jephthah, so I think he's lying. But here we go. I called for you, but you didn't deliver me from the power. When I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life and my own hands and crossed over the Ammonites, and the Lord handed them over to me. Why then have you come today to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead. And so you, do you hear the, wait, where, where's the response from them? He talked to them. Back in that, that long speech going back and forth, he went back and forth with the, those messengers a few times. What happens here with his own fellow countrymen? Gathered all the men of Gilead. They fought and defeated Ephraim because Ephraim had said, you Gileadites are Ephraimite fugitives in the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh. I don't think, I don't think uh, Thug Jephthah likes being called a fugitive. The Gileadites captured the fords of Jordan, leading to Ephraim. Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he answered no, they told him, please say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce it correctly, they seized him and executed him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000 from Ephraim died. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. <sighs> no peace, no idol driven out, no unity in the nation. They look like the surrounding peoples. The, Canaan, the canonization of the Israelites has gotten so deep. They look like the surrounding people so much that they sacrifice their children and fight one another. They look so much like the surrounding peoples, they sacrifice their children and fight one another. I, I'm just wrestling that with our church. Where we are, where are we so formed by the gods of this world that we sacrifice our children, we fight against one another. Rather, could we live as a living sacrifice to God and, and not fight one another, but fight against sin and death and this idolatrous age and the evil one? Could we fight that together and not one another? And Jesus says that the idea of like someone coming outside and, and wrecking shop can't happen, but the idea of it exploding from within is very possible. That disunity and civil wars and factions among us is, is the devil's delight. 
to form us more into the gods of this world. So we don't view our little munchkins as image bearers, the dignity and value. Because they're stamped with the image of God. Inherent dignity and value because of it. But we also don't worship them because they're stamped with the image of God. They're not God. They're amazing. They look like you. They're cute like you. But they can't be God to you. Your, your house can't center around them so much that you end up sacrificing their lives as well because you've put them in a position that they can't handle. And you could say, I'm not as bad as these people, but both lanes have us putting our kids on another altar. So I, I want to give you the space and the time to respond to this, to think, to think, to think through this. I can't say think. <laughs> I can't cross the Jordan. Uh, <laughs> but to think about in my forms, in my practices, in my household, I, is this family more formed by this book than than the gods of this world. And then also to think about bitterness and jealousy and unresolved conflict bruise until it snaps and then it goes to war. How about we nip that in the bud now rather than go to war? Meaning we do this every week but before communion that you'd reconcile with your brother and sister. That you wouldn't let that keep marinating and brewing until it it snaps. And we're no longer negotiating, we're just fighting. And so, I would say, is there anything between you or someone in this room? Is there anyone, be anything between you? And, and, and if you're like, I'm not sure, then, then I think love would say, I'm going to go to that person and, and check and ask and try to presume and not, not just assume but talk about this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing who you are to us. But also I feel such a responsibility in that, Lord of knowing you as the generous, loving Father you are. Jephthah didn't see it. Didn't know you. And so with knowing you, Lord, and knowing how you are to us, I, I ask that you would Grow us more and more to love like you love. To care. To serve our children like you serve us. 
and also remind us that our our daughters are great, our sons are great, but the son is the preeminent, most beautiful being of all. And may may we smile at our kids' faces, but may we smile and rejoice and worship and praise and throw up our hands in doxology because you willingly gave up yourself to death, Jesus, to give us life and forgiveness. Hallelujah. What a Savior.